Well, turn with me to Genesis 1 as the kids are dismissed for their class. And just a couple, couple quick announcements. Um, this Thursday is a National Day of Prayer. And I would just encourage you to, uh, to join me and Pastor Marcus as uh, we lead a time of prayer for our country um, at noon on Thursday. It's a, uh, it's a joy to come before the Lord on behalf of our country to pray for him to work in and through us. And also, uh, just an invitation to all the men coming up in just a few weeks, May 29th and 30th is our men's retreat. And uh, I, I mentioned it last week, as the, I think after the service, but we're, we're moving it here. Uh, so instead of being down at Lake Lopez, we're going to be having it here. You can sign up in the foyer. And uh, this, uh, the theme is, O Man of God, and uh, just a, an encouragement to us. Well, Genesis chapter 1, we kind of began a, a look at the book of Genesis yesterday. Yesterday? Well, that too. But uh, last Sunday, getting a more of an overview feel of the book of Genesis. And today, we're looking at Genesis 1, 1. You probably have it memorized, but it says, in the beginning, what? God created the heavens and the earth. I, I, I think I probably said this last week, but if you, if you were to write a book, it's kind of an odd way to begin a book uh, with a lot of assumptions built into just this first verse. Yet we see that from the very beginning, God is the focus. We're going to be looking more at God's creation next week. But I want to focus on today, who is this God? Who is this God that is here in this verse, who is spoken of? If you remember, the the Hebrew title for the book of Genesis is Bereshit. That is the first three words in the English. In the beginning, literally at the commencement of time. At the commencement of time, notice what this verse says. God was already there. Do you see that? It's not in the beginning God was created. In the beginning, God. At the beginning of time as we know it, there was already God. We see God revealed in a way that must be understood from his word. There's great implications about God in this verse. And from verse 1, we see, if you want to follow along in your notes, that God can be known because In the beginning, God, this book that we are reading, this book called the Bible, specifically here in the book of Genesis, is that which reveals God. For God can be known. Kind of laid this foundation last week that God can be known, but we we see God reveals himself in two ways. We speak of general revelation and Specific or special revelation. General revelation is creation. 
that God has shown. His, divinely at, his divine attributes are clearly and plainly seen, Romans 1. But Romans 1, in that speaking of that general revelation, is only good enough to help us know that there is a God. That there is that which exists, but there is not much information that we can gain about God from creation alone. For there we are given, for then we are given special revelation. The scriptures, that which reveal God. I couldn't help this week but to think about Acts chapter 17. Keep your finger here in Genesis 1. Probably not too hard to find anyways, but look at Acts chapter 17. Actually, it's really hard to find in Brennan's Bible. I was trying to open it for him, and he's missing the pages. So uh, Genesis 1 through 4, he's missing for some reason. Acts chapter 17. The Apostle Paul is in Athens at the Areopagus. And he is speaking on a place that we would call Mars Hill. And he says in verses 22 to 25, So Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription, To the unknown God. What therefore you worship is unknown. This I proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. It's almost as if Paul is giving a exposition of Genesis 1.1. You, you understand the general revelation of men of Athens. You understand that there is a God, but yet you have all these gods, but these are not the true God. This one to the unknown, let me tell you who he is. In the time of Athens, there were the, the Epicureans. They would be the, the strict atheists. Atheists. For they said, all is matter, and matter is all there is. You had the Stoics, who were kind of went to the opposite extreme. They said that everything is God. He only organizes matter. He is the spirit of the universe. He impressed upon it some law and order. But yet they were both erroneous. They both saw God as not existing or not to be understood. Last week we saw Jeremiah 9, 23 and 24. When it speaks, thus says the Lord, Let not the wise man boast in his wisdom, or the rich man boast in his riches, or the mighty man boast in his might. But let him who boasts boast in this, that he understands and he knows me. For I am the Lord who exercises loving kindness. And then it continues. God says he's blessing those who understand and know him. Can we fully know him? No, but God has told us from his word, he has revealed himself in his word that he can be known. Even here in Acts 17, Paul is helping them to understand that God can be known. Excuse me. 
In Genesis 1.1, we see that in the beginning, God. Do you notice that there's, there's this assumption made? Granted, it, this is Moses writing to a religious people, but God doesn't start out trying to build a defense for the existence of himself. It is assumed from the very first verse of the Bible that God exists. And he is the one who existed. And at, in, at the word, uh, excuse me, at the power of his word, all things were brought into existence. For he is the one who is the creator. For God created. If God was the one that created, number two in your notes, God is the creator. He is not the created. He is literally by himself. When we talk about some of the attributes of God, we speak of the aseity of God. Maybe you've heard it, the aseity of God. Meaning that he alone exists in and of himself. And this attribute we see right here in Genesis 1, because in the beginning, God was already there. For from eternity past, he existed without the need of anything else. This attribute is the crux upon all the rest of the attributes of God. We see that because before time as we know it even began, God was there. We understand that as a result of that, by inference or by application of that, letter A, he does not owe his existence to anything or to anyone outside of himself. He doesn't owe his existence. For we ask the question, well, who created God? God is the uncreated one. For he eternally existed. Now, when we're kind of thinking through these things, we kind of hit the barriers, barriers of our thinking, right? Right? For we are locked in time and space. We have been created and we are trying to then try to think even in terms to get a hold of and put our mind around that which has no beginning and has no end. It should blow our minds. Augustine said, that which can be understood is not God. How true that is. For God is the creator, not the created. He doesn't owe his existence, but secondly, he does not depend on anything or anyone outside of himself. By implication, he, God existed in eternity past and had been existing in eternity past without the need of anything. He doesn't depend on anything. We saw that in verse 25 of Acts 17, where it says, nor is he himself, excuse me, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything. Instead, it says, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. Instead of God being the one who needs anything, he is the source of everything. He doesn't need praise. You think of that? 
He doesn't need love. He doesn't need you and me. And sadly, there are pastors who preach, well, God was lonely and he needed something to cast his love upon. No, he didn't. For God does not need anything. Well, pastor, you might say, well, it says that that God desires these things. There's a difference between a need and a desire, is there not? God desires things. He desires that none would perish. But that's not a need. For if God was in need of anything, then he himself is not a sovereign God. Then we cannot declare what we just declared. Oh, Father, you are sovereign. Instead, it would be, oh, Father, you are kind of sovereign and in need of these things. These are amazing foundational truths that have implications that launch themselves throughout the whole of Scripture and are amazing truths for us. Because God is not like the idols which are in need of certain things for even their own existence. The the prophet Isaiah uh, was kind of speaking of the futility of idols in Isaiah 44. He says, uh, I'm trying to cut kind of into the middle of this, uh, speaking of a man goes down and he cuts down a tree. He says, then it becomes fuel for a man. He takes part of it and warms himself. He kindles a fire and bakes bread. Also, he makes a god and worships it. He makes it an idol and falls down before it. Half of it he burns on the fire. Over the half he eats meat. He roasts it and is satisfied. Also, he warms himself and it says, Aha, I am warm. I have seen the fire. Can't you hear the satire almost in his voice? And the rest of it he makes into a god his idol, falls down to it and worships it. He prays to it and says, Deliver me, for you are my God. But if we were to say that God needs anything, then God would be the equivalent of an idol. He would be at our beck and call. He would be our puppet master. But isn't that how often we view God? Isn't that how sometimes we even teach the truth of the gospel? God will just make your life better. That it's all about me. No, God existed in eternity past, not needing anything. He exists in eternity future. He does not need love. He does not need praise. He is, as Exodus 3.14 says, the I am that I am. Yet. Number three, he has chosen to create. In the beginning, God created. He was the one who set upon the path to create. There was not anything that compelled him to create. He existed. He didn't need anything, yet he chose to create. We're going to look at this more next week. But again, Acts 17, 25 nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. But we must start with this understanding that at the beginning of creation, God did not create because he needed. 
but yet he chose to create for a purpose. We see these truths that, that God has been the created, excuse me, been the creator, not the created. Since he existed from eternity past, other terms we could put on that are he's independent. He's self-contained. He's self-sufficient. And I apologize, there's an error in your notes. The, the heading is copied and pasted incorrectly. Number three, this is kind of a, because God is self-existent, because God exists upon his own behalf, he does not need anything, what are some of the ramifications of that? Because God existed in eternity past, does not need anything, what does that mean? It, also, it means, first of all, that God is also immutable. You could put unchangeable. Because God existed not needing anything, and he continues to exist not needing anything, nothing affects him. Nothing changes him. The word mutable means to that is able or subject to be changed. Scripture says this as plainly as possible. Malachi 3.16 I, the Lord, do not change. As if we had any questions left after that, we can't. I do not change. Yet in when we think about change, there's three ways things can change. It can change for the better. It can change for the worse. Or it can be completely different. And God does not change. He does not become any of those. You notice God doesn't improve over time. God doesn't get worse over time. The laws of thermodynamics do not apply to him. Outside influences cannot affect or change God. Again, we are so bound in time and space. We are mutable. We are changeable. I heard this week that if you eat an apple before you go to the grocery store, you tend to not buy as much food. Scientists say that because they know everything, right? Sorry. But we, we understand that we are prone to outside influences affecting us to do certain things. When I'm hungry, I take too much on my plate. Why am I thinking food a lot? No. When I haven't slept enough, I'm more apt to certain behaviors. But God doesn't need anything. He never sleeps nor slumbers. He is beyond our understanding to get our total mind around that. But Proverbs 19.21 says, Many are the plans in the mind of a man, but it is the purpose of the Lord that will stand. Everything that he determines comes to pass. That nothing changes. His character doesn't change. 
Hebrews 6, 17. So when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise, of the promise, the unchangeable character of his purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath. He made a promise against himself because he is, as Malachi 3.16, the God who does not change. His will does not change. Isaiah 46.10, declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times things not yet done, saying, my counsel shall stand and I will accomplish all my purpose. Psalm 33.11 kind of echoes those words. The counsel of the Lord stands forever. The plans of his heart to all generations. His mind doesn't change. Psalm 110.4, the Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. God does not change because he's not affected by any outside thing. We change because we are affected by those things. He exists upon himself, not in need of anything, Therefore, he doesn't change. Also, he is self-sufficient, or because he is self-sufficient, God is also eternal. He has no origin. Therefore, he does not work in time and space. He is outside of time and space. Job thirty-six twenty-six says, Behold, God is great, and we know him not. The number of his years is unsearchable. It's impossible to put even a date on God because a date is in time and space. God does not work in time and space. Psalm 90, verse 1 and 2 says, Lord, you have been our dwelling place in all generations. Before the mountains were brought forth or ever you had formed the, uh, the earth and the world from everlasting to everlasting, you are what? God. If your mind's feeling full right now, it should. The thought of God should fill our mind and say, I'm at a loss. To try to say, before time existed, God existed forever. Christian George, in his book, Godology, he says, God isn't bound by time. He doesn't live in the past and merely peer into the future. He is in the past. He is in the future because God is, we are. Because God has been, we will be. We think, okay, in 10 years, where will I be? But God is already there because he is not bound by time and space. He is the eternal God. What do these truths mean to us? From the beginning of Genesis, we see that God is eternal. He is self-sufficient. He does not change. First of all, since God is self-existent, we should have an attitude of humility. Since God is self-existent, we should have an attitude of humility. Humility. Be reminded, brothers and sisters, God doesn't need us. 
yet he has given us himself. We were declaring these truths of, oh, Father, you are sovereign. And in behold, our God, we proclaim that God eternal risen from the grave. That we need to understand who we are in light of who God is. He is beyond us, and therefore we need to be humbled, much like what God says to Job in Job chapter 38, verses 4 to 6. He says, Where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. Who determined its measurements? Surely you know. Or who stretched the line upon it on which on what were its bases sunk, or who laid its cornerstone? Let us be careful never to think that we are anything in the view of God, in and of ourselves. That we have nothing to offer God. For because He is self-existent, we need to have an attitude of humility. A.W. Tozer kind of writing as if God was speaking, he wrote, This is my name throughout all generations. My memorial forever. I am that I am. I never was created. I was not made. I am. I made you for my love. I made you to worship, honor, and glorify me. I made you to love you and hold you and give myself to you. But you turned away from me and you made yourself God and put yourself on that throne. That is sin. Excuse me. The more we, we begin to see who God is, the more we begin to see ourselves for who we really are. I think that's in the knowledge of the holy by Tozer, but let us never think that we are much. But also, since God is immutable, we can take him at his word. We can take him at his word. Because he doesn't change, we can trust that he will do what he says he will do. Since God does not change, we can trust him to not do what he says he will not do. Amen? (laughs) Because God is unchangeable, he fulfills his promises. In James 1.17, every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Sometimes we focus more on the beginning of that verse, that God is so good to give gifts. But James puts this thread of God's unchangeableness, his immutability, That as he's giving these gifts, he's faithful to never change. Numbers 23, 19 says, God is not man that he should lie, or a son of man that he should change his mind. Has he said, and will he not do it? Or has he spoken, and will he not fulfill it? Just, you know, those are rhetorical questions that the answer are yes. What he says is, 
he will do. Isn't that a great an encouragement? That God is the faithful one. But if God could change, we can't trust him. We don't know if when we take a step of faith, if we can really know that he's going to be there. Isaiah 46, 8 to 10 says, remember this. And notice what he says, and stand firm. Okay, on what? Recall it to mind, you transgressors. Remember the former things of old, for I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning. And from ancient times, things not yet done, saying, My counsel shall stand, and I will accomplish all my purpose. When we don't understand who God is, the trials of life shake us to the core. But when we know who God is, when we understand that he is the unchangeable one, we can trust him. We can trust him to know that he accomplishes all his perfect will, that he's not saying, oops. That there's no power in earth that can tweak his plan even in the slightest That's why we can declare that he is our rock. Because he is immutable, that comfort should encourage our prayer life. It should should encourage us to pray with great faith, knowing that God's will will be accomplished. Stephen Charnock a great Puritan, said, what comfort would it be to pray to a God like that, one that would change? Like the chameleon, changed color every moment? Who would put up a petition to an earthly prince that was so mutable or changeable as to grant a petition one day and deny it another? Yet we do not put up a petition to an earthly prince. We put up our petitions to the unchangeable God who has never changed from eternity past and never will change to eternity future. That is the God we have the ability through Christ to pray to and to watch him work. But God's unchangeableness, his immutability, encourages us to take him at his word, but That should be an encouragement, but it also should be somewhat of a sobering thing. For just as the Lord says, you know what? He does not let the iniquity go unpunished. That just as much as he will fulfill his plans to work all things together for good for those who love him and that are called according to his purpose, he also brings all things according to the plan of that every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. That God's not going to be when I stand before him go, you know what, I'm going to give you a pass on this one. 
No sin goes unpaid for. Either I pay for it or Christ paid for it. There is no in-between. And so while the unchangeableness of God is a great rock that we can hang on to, we also need to understand that that rock is a rock of judgment as well. How does this also apply since God is eternal? First of all, we can know he is always near. Becky at our nine o'clock hour table brought this up at the table just as a great comfort and a great reminder. That there's never a time when God doesn't exist. There isn't a place in which God doesn't exist. We haven't even gotten into the omnipresence of God here. But Deuteronomy 33, 27 says, The eternal God is your dwelling place, and underneath are the everlasting arms. The eternal God, the everlasting arms. We never have to wonder. But secondly, since God is eternal, we see that he has set eternity in our hearts exactly from Ecclesiastes 3.11. He has put eternity into man's hearts. Excuse me, heart. We have one heart. That in creating us, he has placed upon us. Now when he says put eternity into man's heart, we're speaking of from a one point in time to eternity future. God is from zero point in time, both directions. That makes sense? But since God is eternal, we know He's always near. He has set eternity in our hearts. Number three, we must count our days. We understand that God is the infinite, the eternal. We are limited in time and space. Psalm 90, verse 12, the psalmist says, So teach us to number our days that we may get a heart of wisdom. There is eternity beyond the here and now. We need to number our days The choices I make today affect eternity. I think it's even hard as a a child. Your your parent says to you, you need to be careful because the things that you're doing now are going to affect your future. Multiply that by infinitum. Is that the word? We're not talking just within our lifespan. We're talking about all eternity That which we do today affects eternity. There was a pastor at our old church who shared a sermon, always living in view of eternity. That's what alive means. Let us not think that God is just a buddy-buddy. While God has been a comforter, We understand that he is the one who was in the beginning before the beginning as we know it ever began. 
He is the one who set time in motion. He is the one who continues to hold it all together. We'll see next week. And he doesn't change. A.W. Tozer tries to uh, put into words, and that, that was my prayer this morning as I was here earlier, just saying, Lord, how do I put you into any kind of words that give you any type of glory that you're due? For any words that I try to put together are not enough. Tozer, I think, said it better than I probably can. He said, God is not at the top of a heap of the heap in an ever-ascending perfection of being from the worm on up until finally we reach God. On the contrary, God is completely different and separate so that there are no degrees in God. God is simply God, an infinite perfection of fullness. And we cannot say God is a little more or a little less. More or less are creature words. We can say that a man has a little more strength today than yesterday. We can say the child is a little taller this year. He's growing. But you can't apply more or less to God, for God is the perfect one. He's just God. And this is the God we begin to see revealed here in Genesis 1-1. Psalm 102 declares the truth of God when it says in verses 25 to 28, Of old you laid the foundation of the earth, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you will remain. They will all wear out like a garment. You will change them like a robe, and they will pass away, but you are the same, and your years have no end. The children of your servants shall dwell secure. Their offspring shall be established before you. We wonder why sometimes we feel lost. We wonder why sometimes we are struggling. Let me ask, is it because we've made a God of our own thinking? For who is God? He is the God of the Scriptures. He is the one who does not change. He does not need anything. Who has existed and will forever exist. And He is the one we all bow the knee. For He is our Creator. But the question is, do we bow our knee to our Creator as our Lord and Savior or as our Lord and our Judge? For we must do one, for he is God and there is no other. He is the only true God. I pray that we understand and that we know him as Jeremiah 9 says. That his word would be in our lives, showing us the truth of who he is. That our hearts would be turned toward him in repentance and faith. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word and Father, my, my words feel so inadequate to even begin to scratch the surface of who you are. But yet, Lord, I pray that, that the Holy Spirit would take your word, 
planted deep within, not because of the the might of this speaker, but because of the might of your word. Lord, show us yourself. Show us your glory. Just as Moses prayed that we would stand in awe of who you are. For you are the God Almighty. We thank you that we can trust you, that you are the same yesterday, today, and forever. Lord, deepen our faith. Strengthen us that we may walk in accordance to your word, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.